My new book is now available. It's called Peace Over Pain: How to Eliminate Chronic Pain and/or Chronic Illness, so you can break free from the medical monopoly. If you want it instantly, you can get the ebook and audio book together as a package on peaceoverpain.com. And of course, the paperback is available on Amazon right now. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, Here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Would you like to win at life? Welcome to episode number 147. Today, I have the honor of sitting down to talk to Lee Steinberg. He is a legendary sports agent, an author, and a motivational speaker. Before we begin... Sit down, relax, and take in this beautiful recording. Let's begin. All right, Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So in your busy career, What's your method for handling the stress? Because sports isn't easy. Well, I think the first thing is to exercise regularly uh, because mm -hmm. it, it burns off uh, a, a lot of so-called tension or stress and gets endorphins going. So that's one thing I do. I also do hyperbaric oxygen, mm -hmm. which has been shown to have a really uh, positive effect on uh, with that extra oxygen uh, and the rest of it. And then um, I love reading. So I can get away from things that there are people who are workaholics. I'm not. I work very hard, but then when I'm off, I'm off. And really? So it's creating that uh, wall or that division between um active work so if you walked into my home i have no posters no uh uh memorabilia i have none you of that you up. separate it yes it, it that's here but at home there's none of that and then huh. my dad had two core values one of which was treasure relationships especially family and the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world. So um, part of what stops it from being stressful is that I know every day going into the office with all our forward planning, with everything uh, supposedly under control, there will inevitably be a series of reverses and problems that you couldn't anticipate. So if you know they're all coming, instead of that being a stressful event, you just assume that that's going to happen and you're ready for it. I also try to put some emotional distance between some of the work I do. So while it may be intense, um, my reaction to it doesn't have to be intense. 
Um, so um, those are some of the things I do. In addition to working out with a personal trainer, I walk 10 to 15,000 steps a day. Um, and then it helps very much to have a home that overlooks the ocean. So there's something very peaceful about looking at water. Now you dropped some gems there. One of the things that really stood out to me is that you separate personal from work. A lot of people cannot do that. That's very difficult to do. How long have you been doing that? Is that a recent thing or something you even did as a young man? No, I've always tried to, uh, to bifurcate uh, that. And also trying to be present in this moment. Hmm. So in this moment, I have no idea what day of the week it is. I don't know what I'm doing after this. I uh, have no interest in my cell phone. Um, all I'm doing is sh sharing these moments with you and listening to your voice and the text and the subtext. So the same thing for relaxation. When I'm at home or the beach or on vacation, I'm into that moment. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I have um, phone calls waiting or something else, I consider the phone is a request for your time. Yes. You're not obligated to, to answer that phone at every second. You're not there's no law that says you have to be completely fixated with uh, what's on your phone. So when I go home, I put the phone away. I might look every few hours uh, or at the end of an evening, but I'm off duty. Well put. So when did you start getting into present moment awareness? Was that something early on in your career or later? I think it always happened. Um, and I think the most important skill in life is listening skills. So if you can draw out another human being and understand what their deepest anxieties and fears are and greatest hopes and dreams and tune in at a deeper level so that you put yourself in the other person's heart and mind, you can gracefully navigate your way through uh, everything. But um, I've always tried to focus on what's in front of me. It's not that we don't do any planning. It's just that this moment that we're sharing is every bit as important and critical as any other moment uh, that I'll live. And the whole concept of, you know, killing time and, and uh, the rest of it is like, Tom, time is the one inexorable uh, quality that um, uh, that's finite and, and goes away. So why not get the most out of this moment and then I'll get the most out of the next. That's right. Squeeze the juice out of it. Now you mentioned also preparing yourself for something that could happen or may happen, a stressor. That's, that's very stoic. That's very prepare for the worst, but expect the best. You know, there's a lot that that philosophy can work towards, uh, even perhaps losing a loved one, right? Yes. Um, it's, uh, there's no etiquette for grief, right? But 
if you understand the fragility and transience of uh, life and lifespan, then you understand that the time to tell someone that you love them is right now. Mm. And the time to tell them how much they mean to you is right now. And it's, um, you want to be expressive with people and um, don't leave any doubt as to what your feelings are. And in that way, you won't sit there and say, well, if only if, you know, if I had had the chance, oh, I knew he must have known or she must have known how much I love you. But you just I see life as a long march with columns of people going on. And then every once in a while, someone drops off the side and that's an inevitability. Um, so you want to treasure the time you had with them uh, before they're gone. Right on. In your opinion, what's the key to fulfillment in this life? Doing a internal inventory that makes it clear to yourself what your goals and priorities are. Is it short-term economic gain? Is it long-term economic security? Is it spiritual values? Is it family values? Is it geographical location? Is it autonomy? Um, what is most critical to you? But I do think that the key for me is helping other people. And that admonition my father gave me to, to try to uh, heal pain and suffering. So the point is, I have a deep belief uh, in my practice with athletes being role models and retracing their roots and giving money uh, and time back to their high school community, collegiate, professional, and then being messengers. Um, so the heavyweight champion Lennox Lewis cut a public service announcement, my client, um, real men don't hit women. So feeling like you're having an impact on the world that maybe it's a little nicer place uh, because you were here, feeling that you were a good father and a good son and a good brother and you were there for your friends in times of crisis, I think that following those values um, leads to fulfillment because I know that's what I'm on there to do, to treasure relationships, especially family, and to make a meaningful difference in the world. So what fulfills me is not the money in contracts I negotiate or the fees. It's um, watching the maturation of young men stimulating the best values and then together seeing what we can do to use the high profile of uh, professional athletes to trigger positive imitative behavior so we could take on sex trafficking or bullying or domestic violence or uh, racism or the environment and make a difference so that's the fulfillment sports is a great platform to to help in other arenas absolutely sports and music sports and music connects everyone <laughs> and you know we're a celebrity based culture now so that and athletes are part of that so the starting quarterbacks in the nfl have tremendous profile yeah. and they can use that uh influence for for good uh in a positive way so 
for me, fulfillment is being there when my daughter has a problem and being able to talk her through it. It's being there for a friend when they're in need and it's not convenient to be a friend. It's, it's um, watching work done, put the 200 single mother and their family into the first home they'll ever own by making a down payment and moving them in. It's, it's feeling that we're always striving to make a positive difference. Yeah. Now, I go back about almost 20 years with Chris Cabot, who was also on this podcast about a year ago. And so now he's, is he president of your company or CEO or both? He's the, he's the CEO. Yeah. He runs it day to day. He's in charge. Um, and uh, I still have my hand in, but um you know, the younger agents at our firm are building their own life and their own legacy. And Chris is doing a great job. Yeah. And so that, that that's what I was going to ask is if he's running the day to day, what are you now doing? I see you're doing public speaking. You're kind of going around. And what so, keeps you going? Well, first of all, I still have responsibilities for our older clients for the Mahomes and Tuatongo Vailoas and Taylor Heineke of the world. So I'm still uh, uh, one of their agents. And so I can't uh, abandon that. But one of the things I've been doing is trying to aggregate modalities of healing mm -hmm. that um, have the opportunity in the athletic realm to make them more competitive in key moments and return them to service quicker. And for all the rest of us, keep our cognitive abilities much sharper, work with the brain, heal concussed brains, um, but also to extend longevity. So it's hyperbaric oxygen, which I've done 140 times. It's stem cells, which I've had 300 million of them. It's a brain process called R. TMS that stimulates the brain and connections within it. It's um, light stem, which uh, gives energy, protein folding, ATP. It's biofeedback in a, in a brain sense that stimulates it. It's a water that elevates energy. So I've sort of been on a search for the breakthroughs in biomed and what they can mean, um, not only to athletes, but to all of us, to you're uh, a little young to need it, but uh, eventually. Well, I, I mean, you're talking right up my alley because that's that's what I do. I'm a, I help people go from health burden to health miracle, as I like to say. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot to talk about there, uh, maybe at another time. Today is all about inner peace, but you know, being healthy is part of that. Um, I, I, I like to refer to them as health burdens because that's what happens is when we fall into pain, it becomes such a burden on us, you know? So I, you let off with the question about stress. Yeah. And uh, I do a hyperbaric chamber three times a week. And when I get out of it, um, I feel re-energized and right. I might go in there with a tough day, but 
they do light stem, hyperbaric, and then a thing called brain body boost. And when you come out, um, all the cares of the day are gone. Well, now I got to introduce you to postural therapy. <laughs> I'd love to learn about it. Now that will blow your mind. I was looking through your page and I saw that your, your mother is 94 years old. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so how do you, how do you uh, maintain that? with your mother, uh, obviously an advanced senior, 94 is a good run, man. That's a great run. You know, that's an A <laughs> and you know, uh, death is a big, big topic on this podcast. I bring death experts in. I've had people with near death experiences. Uh, I've, I've had people that do end of life counseling. It's a very big topic that the listeners explore right here on this podcast how do you deal with your mortality and your mother's so um my mother actually had a stroke about 20 years ago mm. and it impaired her to the point where she has a few good moments but mostly is not the mom i remember mm. um and um so we've been dealing with that uh, for years. Her at 94, her her alert cognitive state is narrowing, and so I've always said that at a certain point, the parents become the children, and the children become the parents. So yeah. it's an adjustment. I remember when my father died of cancer, and this robust, vital source of strength for all of us. I mean, it was destabilizing to watch him, uh, his body waste away to, uh, to cancer. Mm. But um, I think that um, uh, with my mom, we, we try to keep her uh, comfortable. We try to keep her as active as, as she can be, but you know, her memory uh, short term is, is gone. So um, when, when I first saw that transference from the vital, funny, life of the party mom to someone lying there, it, it's destabilizing. It shakes you to the core because um, you always have the sense there's a higher level of, of family on this earth than, than we are. And um, um, but, you know, I had uh, 65, 70 good years with her. So I remember those moments. Um, as to my own mortality, I think there's part of the human brain um, that uh, shuts off issues that are too large. In other words, we, um, there's a certain fear of death. And so you just blot it out. But I um, applaud the fact that you talked talk it through because um, um, you know, you'd like to have a point of view uh, and acceptance of the life cycle um, mm. before, before it hits you. But, um, you know, I'm 73 and um, 
peers are retired and dying and I'm still right in the middle of my practice. So I think part of it is that we have a new sense of age. Um, when I thought of somebody who was 73, I thought of someone with uh, sitting on a park bench with mismatched Madras shorts and black, mm -hmm. sock, black socks and black shoes button up to the top of drool coming down. Right, right. And, you know, I'm physically able to do all sorts of things and am right in the middle. I'm about to write another book, which will be my third. Um, we're uh, running Asian academies to help teach younger uh, people. Um, and I continue to crusade against concussion and I'm organizing a education program that will create a new generation of leadership against hate. So um, I think that, that uh, and I have two sons that unfortunately are blind from something called retinitis pigmentosa. Hmm. So I need to, so they're both legally blind. So um, there's, plenty of reason that I need to be here and at the, the height of uh, whatever powers I am. As I said, I've been exploring. Last week I was in Orlando. There's a center called Lake Nona, which is a planned community, uh, all dedicated to health and wellness. And I did a biofeedback brain treatment that um, uh, showed me our, where I was cognitively um, and worked on whatever problems there were. Well, I'm glad you stay in the present moment because you got a lot going on. It stands out to me that you're 73. You're a senior by American's definition. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean... <laughs> no, that's funny. Don't you? I almost spit up my drink. And, um, and your mother is an advanced senior... Mm -hmm. who needs care and it's a senior taking care of a senior helping taking care of a senior and then two sons that are blind that's quite a bit well you understand that the chronological age may be 73 but um you know i'm still out rocking and rolling and um yeah. and i don't carry that with me um it's uh and I deal with lots of young people. And um, I, th I think our generation, the baby boomers, who are the big bulge in the population because of servicemen coming home from war and having delayed families. So we're this massive uh, generation yeah. are redefining age. So 73 is the new 43. <laughs> right on. I'm about to be 43. So we're... There you go. We're... <laughs> Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, I've always been interested in people who are really into their careers and they keep going and going because they like it. They like what they do. You know, I automatically, I think of someone like uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, um, yourself, uh, Vince McMahon, the CEO of the WWE is like 76. You know, you think of someone like Hugh Hefner. He worked till he was like 85 or whatever. Other people who may not like what they do, they retire, right? You know, 63, right? They're done. Do you think loving what you do is key 
in your health? Absolutely. It's having a, a sense of passion and fulfillment in uh, what you do. And it's, um, um, I just created a career out of things I liked. I love sports. There really was no sports agentry when I started. Um, I love uh, books, so I've written a number of them. Um, I like movies, so I've been technical advisor on a bunch of them. Um, I like public speaking, so I do it. Um, I like writing in all its forms, so I've written book reviews and movie reviews and, and was a columnist for Forbes. Um, I want to make a difference in the world, so we work on these social and charitable programs, and there's still satisfaction in the one-on-one -on -one mentoring of um, young athletes and, and helping stimulate their best maturation. So um, I just picked all the things I thought was fun, were fun, travel, um, being part of it, the ability. There may be people who have traveled more overseas. There are many people. But when it comes to being across this country, you know, I've been quite a few places. And, um, and that's fun to experiment with different cultures and everything else. And as I said, I, I'm always trying to learn more. I read six newspapers a day. I read a bunch of magazines. So I love reading. So I set up a book club on Facebook. Which, uh, <laughs> right you know, on. We have, have 2,500 members. So um, it's just a matter of finding things that you like and then calling it a career. Um, but these are things I do for fun anyway. Right. I'm the same way. I appreciate that. Speaking of movies, it's well documented that Jerry Maguire was inspired, you know, is supposedly based off of you. How accurate was that movie? Well, it's, it's Cameron Crowe's great, creative um, production, but he called me up in 1993. This is a director writer. And he asked me if he could follow me around for a film that would center on the character of a sports agent. So he started following me at the 1993 draft where I had Drew Bledsoe as a client as the first pick. And then he came to the league meetings in, um, Palm Desert and watched the process where I was showing off a free agent named Tim McDonald. And then he came to a series of games, spent time in my office. He came to pro scouting day at USC to a Super Bowl, my Super Bowl party a couple of years. And I told him stories, lots and lots of stories. And then um, my job as technical advisor was to vet the script to make sure that the willing suspension of disbelief that holds you in a motion picture um, didn't get fractured. So you didn't think it was phony or the dialogue was silted. And then he gave me actors like Cuba Gooding Jr., who I took down to the Super Bowl in Arizona. And I made him pretend he was my client all week. Yeah. And put him in role. So it's been 25 years, and I rarely walk through an airport or out to dinner 
where someone doesn't come up to the table and either say four words to me or uh, ask me to say four words, which start with show me, me the, the money. <laughs> so did the goldfish scene really happen? Things like that happened. Right. Um, in other words, he would take poetic license uh, with stories I gave him, but, um, and make no mistake, brilliant writer, brilliant director, and and it's all his, uh, to his credit. But um, there's a lot of life up there on the screen. Did the movie change your life? Did it just flip everything upside down or what? Well, it did somewhat, just in the sense that it ended up being the highest grossing uh, sports related film of all time mm. until the blind side replaced it and it's perpetually shown on tv somewhere and i think it had the effect of humanizing sports agents of um helping them people understand the real caring that goes on and obviously it um um in terms of public perception, there's constant feedback from that. Now, you've you've represented, I think, six about over sixty NFL first rounders in the draft. Yes, sixty-four. Wow. What's one or two key moments that really stand out to you over that long career? I think Troy Aikman winning his first Super Bowl. Um, was a critical uh, moment. He were in his car going back uh, after the, he had won the game. And he said, and I said to him, you know, how do you feel? What, you know, what do you think? He said, well, we won the game. I said, no, Troy. You walked into the stadium and you were Troy Aikman, good football player. You walked out and you were Troy Aikman, superstar. And he said, oh, I don't know. And then we got to the hotel and you, the, we were mobbed by this huge crowd. So you saw the instantaneous uh, elevation at that critical moment. Steve Young had been in the shadow of the quarterback of the 49ers for, of Joe Montana for years. Yeah. And whatever he did, it was never in the fans' mind's eye what Joe Montana would have done. You know, Joe Montana completed every pass through every touchdown pass. They won the Super Bowl every year in, in the minds of Montana faithful. So he goes out and throws, uh, Steve goes out and throws six touchdown passes. And um, in the game, he's MVP. And I get down on the field and he runs up and says, the monkey's off my back. The monkey's <laughs> off my back. Um then I think a moment where uh, I gave the presenting speech for Warren Moon at the Hall of Fame, which is not something that agents, you know, do. And, um, and it, it, he was a stunning role model who retraces Richard's high school, his college at the Crescent Moon Foundation. And we're standing up on the stage and we've gone through 23 years, seven years of uh, six years of Canada and 17 years uh, otherwise. And um, um, he uh, um, and I'm able to give that speech. And at the end, we embrace. So that was 
a highlight. Um, I mean, doing the biggest contract of all time for Steve Young back in the day, and then the same thing happened again with uh, Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. But the best moments are at the charitable foundations. So um, Warren Moon <clears throat> held a banquet one night and he said, how many people here have gone to college on my scholarships? And well, one by one, a whole room stood up and a young um, doctor came up to me and said, I didn't even have the money to go to college, much less med school. You know, uh, God bless Warren Moon. Oh. So it's feeling the the change and feeling the impact and uh, all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, the the contract with Patrick Mahomes, which is just what, a year and a half ago or something. It was June of 20, 2020. Yeah, and he and he just seems like a really level-headed young man. <laughs> Very grounded. Yeah, and this contract sort of raises the bar for for other quarterbacks, doesn't it? Because well, for the first time, quarterbacks are yes, because every contract builds on that. So next, you're going to get. Um, uh, Deshaun Watson next you're going to get each contract builds on itself so um, um, the market just gets bigger and bigger which pro teams can afford because the television contracts are so big right right what do you see um, the future of CTE happening what, what do you see where do you see that going do you well, because a lot of your work right. sort of goes with that, with with the brain. I've seen photos of you with the, I don't know what you call it, but the elect electro looking hat on, and you know you wear it proudly. You know. <laughs> well, I'm trying to show other people that, that yeah, that the premise had always been that the brain only gets worse; it never gets better. And I had a crisis of conscience back in the early '90s because I'm representing half the starting quarterbacks and they keep getting hit in the head and we go to doctors and ask how many are too many and what's the magic number and they um, um, and, and they have no answers so I started holding concussion conferences which we held the 17th one um, I think the good news is finally after all this time there's some promising uh, treatments that will restore a concussed brain. I mean, we can change the rules of, of football. We can do all sorts of things preventatively to stop it from happening, but it still will happen. So, um, and biofeedback has shown promising results. The process I described, our TMS has shown promising results. So we're getting closer to being able to heal the concussed brain. And that's good news. Yeah. What would you say is a key to maintaining a happy relationship? Listening skills. I would say the key is when you go home <laughs> at night to your significant other, ask her or him, 
how their day went and listen. And when you listen, don't try to fix every problem. Don't try to shortcut the conversation. Um, let the other person talk as long as they want. And at the end of it, everyone in life wants to be heard and understood for their unique voice. And uh, if you do that every day, then the other person feels heard and validated in the relationship. Um, and also, you need to tell your significant other every day, you want them to wake up feeling loved, valued, supported. Um, and if you can create that atmosphere, um, then um, things ought to be more harmonious. When you're dealing with young athletes, you're dealing with young 20-year-olds, there's so much growth they have coming up. It's quite easy for a lot of them to get in trouble, make mistakes. As a sports agent that's been around for a long time, how do you deal with these mistakes? Do you become like a big brother, a father figure? Do you, do you, hey, well, a lot of what we do is prevention. Yeah. So you sit an athlete down and you talk to them about money and managing money well and having a financial planner in their life and following a budget and doing a financial plan. You talk to them about public behavior and uh, being careful about alcohol, having a designated driver, avoiding being in situations where you get into fights. You talk about being sensitive to the fact that you can't put your hands on anyone, especially women in uh, anger. Um, so you try to be preventative. Notwithstanding all that, if the mistake comes, then the key is to, does this athlete need help? Do they need to go to AA or anger management or do they need some form of uh, adjustment? And if you do make a mistake, apologize for it quickly. State the real standard um, and then the healing can begin. I saw on your Facebook page that, you know, you made a post recently with Passover that just passed over. And I was wondering how in touch you are with your Jewish heritage. My Jewish heritage um, is a little less about regular temple attendance and much more about a set of values, mm. which is an understanding of the critical importance of family, an understanding of the value of education, an understanding that I've got a responsibility and obligation to uh, be my brother's keeper and to help other people, believe in the state of uh, Israel. Um, and um, um, so, I'm proud I'm Jewish, uh, but my faith is more the values I took out of uh, being part of that heritage. On your journey, did you ever explore anything else, such as Buddhism or Taoism or any of the Eastern traditions or anything like that? You know, I went to Berkeley in the late '60s, so um, <laughs> the the I don't I think there's 
merely a religious alternative we didn't explore and uh, you know took a look at, at buddhism the whole concept of being present meditation um and uh you know the hindu religion christianity obviously it's a christian country and uh a lot of respect for that but yes yeah, the 60s, so Ram Das, uh, Alan Watts, all in the 60s, right? They're big well, figures. Well, yeah, one of my good friends, Howard Resnick, became the U.S. head of Hare Krishna. Ah, okay. Right, yeah. Yeah, because earlier when you mentioned present moment awareness, that's typically an Eastern type of methodology. So that's why I had to ask. Yeah. You weren't a hippie back then, were you? Were you a hippie, Lee? Well, we were going to school. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I was student by president of Berkeley in 1970 in the midst of all the tumult. And, um, but we all experienced, you know, uh, longer hair and, and, and work shirts and tie dye and rock music and, and, exploring every alternative uh, life um, experience. Um, you know, it was an exciting time. What's the life, what's the one moment in your life that was really life-changing, that really turned the tide? Well, you know, I'm, I'm in my uh, 13th year recovery for alcoholism, and <clears throat> I think it was an epiphany that I had that um, I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur. I wasn't sitting in the Ukraine with heavy bombing going on. I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany. And uh, nothing was wrong with my body that was not self-induced. So what excuse did I have um, to be sitting on my father's bed thinking only of where I could find more vodka? And so it was an epiphany that started me back on the road to recovery. How many years were you were you over drinking? I don't know, four or five. Um, it, it, I was not a lifetime heavy drinker. It snuck up on me in the last mm. uh, in the later years. Right. Yeah. So when you come across an athlete that might be into that or something similar, you must have a lot of compassion towards that. Oh, I do. Um, it, um, having been through that experience, you understand how people become homeless. You understand um, the power of addiction and how it changes the brain mm. in ways that... Um, in, in ways that are inexplicable to people who haven't been through it. You know, someone who would say, why don't you just quit? Well, right. my brain and cravings are supplanting my frontal lobe and I'm going straight to the lizard brain, which is craving, craving, craving. Right, right. Yeah. Well, before I get to my last question, where can someone come get your first two books and when can they expect book number three? Um, we're just making the deal for book number three. I'm going to guess it'll be out at the Super Bowl next year. 
Um, and, um, and the others uh, are still available on Amazon. Winning with Integrity, How to Get What You Want Without Losing Your Soul um, came out many years ago. Um, there, there might be old copies on Amazon, uh, but you can still buy the agent. Now, I just thought of something. How about the show Arliss? Were you involved with Arliss? Yes, I didn't take uh, credit because I gave um, them my, all of my worst ideas of things you could never do as an agent, and they wrote scripts around them. So I was <laughs> careful not to take uh, credit as technical advisor. Uh, that just crossed my mind, Arliss. That was like the first one. Yeah. All right. Last question. What three books had the biggest influence on your life? Uh, there's uh, uh, a series of books by Noah Duvall Hariri. Uh, the first one, Sapiens. And um, they trace the whole sociology of, uh, of uh, us as a human species. In other words, how we develop, why we act the way we do, what our fundamental nature is. And there's three of them in that series that I think are really, really good. Um, there's a book called, uh, there's a book about President Lincoln's uh, uh, presidency, which is called Team of Rivals by mm -hmm. Doris Godwin Kearns. And it explains more about politics and how you can, um, Lincoln essentially took everyone who was his bitter rival and put them in his government, um, mm. which is not something people usually do. And he managed to keep all these brilliant, talented people who, some of whom didn't really like him and some of whom didn't like each other. Um, he managed to keep them together so that they could win the uh, uh, Civil War. There's a third book called Collapse by Jared Diamond that talks about um, the great civilizations over time mm. and what it was that, <clears throat> what the commonality was to bring them to an end. So it's, it's how societies and dominant powers it's the factors that lead them to come apart and it's very apropos for today all right right on lee it's been a pleasure talking to you today nice talking with you thanks for listening to inner peace with dr reese if this episode opened your heart Feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.